How many of you have seen the movie Encanto? Yeah, a good number of you. Uh, this is a fantastically popular, it's actually a fantastic movie, but fantastically popular Disney movie about the Madrigal family. Now, when you first meet the family in the movie, lots of the, most of them are there in the picture. When you first meet the family, you get the sense that uh, everything about them is sort of perfect and magical and wonderful. Uh, they even have magical superpowers. But pretty soon in, you begin to discover that not everything is great. In fact, uh, all of the outward appearance is masking some really great dysfunction. That this family is highly dysfunctional. You meet the characters in the family along the way and find out that not everything is what you might have thought on first impression. There's Alma, the abuela or grandmother, <clears throat> who is uh, racked by deep fear. And as a result of her incredible fear, she's very controlling and uh, manipulative. There is Luisa. She's the one with the donkey on her shoulder. She's the oldest child. And she has great strength, but you find out that she is cracking under the pressure of trying to live up to everybody's expectations, that she always be strong enough for whatever comes her way. There's Isabella, who is the middle child, who again, first impression is that she is beautiful and nothing uh, ever goes wrong for her. She's the golden child, um, but it turns out that she is miserable uh, and lonely. And then Mirabelle, who is the main character in the front, from the very beginning you get the sense that she doesn't fit in her own family. Uh, and it's painful and difficult to watch. There is uh, Julieta, who is the mom. She tries to make everything better with food. There is Peppa, the aunt, whose emotions control her and she is driven this way and that by sort of every wind of emotion that comes her way. And then there is Bruno, who he's tough to see. He's in the green hood hiding sort of by the tree on the left-hand side of the poster. He's got a gift of prophecy, which seems cool, but everybody blames him for everything that's gone wrong in the family, and he's currently hiding in the walls of the house that they live in. When I watched this movie, it reminded me of the very famous line from Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, in which he says, this is the opening line of the book, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. It's the opening line of the book because all the families in Anna Karenina are also dysfunctional and unhappy. And when you hear that line, you might pick up the feeling of isolation and loneliness that happens when you are in a dysfunctional family or a dysfunctional situation. And that when you're going through something like that, you feel all alone, like there's nobody else in the world that's ever gone through what you're going through or can relate to what you're going through. But the power of Tolstoy's opening line is, is the reality is, is although the circumstances change from family to family, when you experience dysfunction, there is a commonality that binds us together. This is the reason why I think Encanto is so super popular. 
On one hand, it doesn't look like it would be a very good movie, at least from Disney standards, because it lacks the Disney villain. There's no real bad guy in Encanto. But this is the power of the movie, is what they have finally stumbled on is a real villain, which is dysfunction. A villain that we can actually relate to because so many of us have experienced this in reality. And so when you watch the movie, instead of seeing some sort of weird bad guy that you would never ever experience in life, you're watching the real problems that dysfunction creates in families. And so many people connect to it and relate to it because dysfunction is a reality. And dysfunction in the families in which we grew up and the families in which we live and our extended families is a reality that we have to deal with. The Bible itself is full of stories about dysfunctional families. David's family, Hannah's family, Job's family, Noah's family, Lot's family, Abraham's family, Isaac's family. But today we get to look at what may may be the most dysfunctional family in the Bible. Which is surprising to me that they're so dysfunctional because this is the founding family of the nation of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. And as you watch the family dynamics unfold, you think to yourself, how in the world did this family even survive? let alone go on to become the founding family of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. Well, the purpose for which we are doing this, again, is not a history lesson. The purpose is is so that we might, with this dysfunctional family, perhaps find some of our own story in this. And more importantly, see how God is present and what God does to bring health in the midst of dysfunction. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 29. There's Bibles in the rack in front of you. You might have brought your own. You might have one on your phone. Genesis 29, in the Bibles that the church provides, that's page 23. And we're gonna look together at Genesis 29 and the first half of Genesis 30. So uh, partly, part of two chapters. And I encourage you when you have time on your own to go back and to read this story in its entirety because the details are powerful. We don't have time to read it all this morning so what I'm going to do is describe for you or recount for you the story and then we're going to talk about it together. We will be looking at particular verses so I would love if you had your Bible open so I could show you some particular things. But what's happening in this story is that Jacob, we talked about him last week, he has run away from home because his brother wants to kill him. That's got its own dysfunction associated with it. But he runs away from home and he's going to find a wife. And so we talked about last week how God, who is his good shepherd, led Jacob to the one place he needed to go to this well where he meets the daughter of his uncle Laban. So his mom's name is Rebecca. Her brother's name is Laban. Laban has a daughter, Rachel. And we saw last week that Jacob meets Rachel at this well and falls in love with her. 
Well, when he finds out that she is the daughter of his uncle and his uncle meets him, the uncle is overjoyed to see him and welcomes Jacob into his family. The uncle says to Jacob, who starts doing some work for him, hey, you shouldn't work for me for free. What would be the wages you would like? And Jacob says, I'd like to work for the right to marry Rachel. And Laban says, great, work seven years and you can marry my daughter Rachel. So Jacob works the seven years and they pass as if they're just a blink of an eye. But on the wedding night, when it's time to marry Rachel, Laban deceives Jacob and swaps Rachel for her older sister, Leah. When you read the story, you'll get to this really, it's actually a funny line in the Bible where it says, Jacob woke up the next morning and there was Leah. So he goes to Laban and is like, what are you doing? I agreed to marry Rachel. You gave me Leah to marry. And Laban says to him, oh, no, 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 in our culture, we don't let the younger daughter get married until the older daughter is married, and so you married Leah. And Jacob's like, but I want to marry Rachel. And Laban says, finish your honeymoon with Leah, and then you can marry Rachel. So after seven days of being married to Leah, Jacob then marries her younger sister, Rachel. And so the dysfunction begins of one man married to two sisters at the same time. As you can imagine, a rivalry develops, in part because Jacob actually loves Rachel and doesn't prefer Leah. But also because Leah is able to have children and Rachel is not. So as Rachel is struggling with not having children, she ends up doing what Jacob's grandmother Sarah did, which is introduce a surrogate mother into the situation, as if this didn't already have enough trouble on its own. So Rachel's servant ends up having two boys by Jacob. So Leah's had some boys by Jacob. Rachel's servant has two boys by Jacob. Well, Leah says, well, two can play that game. So she introduces her servant as a surrogate mother into the situation. That surrogate mother has two kids. And then in the middle, when you go back and read this, you'll, you want to read it because I'm not making this up. In the middle of all of this, Leah decides to hire her husband to sleep with her, and so Leah pays Rachel for the right to be able to sleep with her husband, Jacob, and when she does so, she ends up having more children by Jacob. So by the time you get to the end of the story, you got one husband, four wives, 11 boys, another will come later, one girl, and total and complete dysfunction. And as we think about that story this morning, we kind of want to walk through, character by character, the dysfunction that's present. Our first character is Leah, the first wife, the oldest sister. Leah believes wrongly, but she believes it, that she's unlovable. And so if we were going to give a description of the state of where Leah's in, we would call her desperate for love. 
Can you imagine what it must have felt like for your dad to think that you are unmarriable? Because that's essentially what's happened. Laban doesn't think anybody would marry this girl on their own. He, of course, is wrong. God is in control of such things. But Laban thinks no one's going to choose her. And so he comes up with this scheme to marry her off in secret. But you know the problem? There's lots of problems with it. But you know the problem from Leah's point of view? She has to go along with it. She can't not know this is happening, which means at some point she had to agree to do this. Now, perhaps she thought that once she married Jacob that he would learn to love her. I can't imagine that after seven days, when her sister now joins the relationship, that this is going to go well. But Leah thinks, maybe if I give him children, he will love me. This is not just my conjecture. It's actually what the story says. If you look in Genesis 29, verse 32, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. I'm guessing that Leah, as an oldest child, has come to the wrong impression that she's only lovable for the actions that she does. That if she works hard enough, if she does the right thing, if she never gets out of line, if she's a little like Luisa from Encanto, if she's always strong enough and always responsible and always doing the right thing, that she will be loved. And so she thinks, well, if I could give him a child, he'll love me. Verse 33, she conceived again and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved. In other words, it didn't work. She thought that Jacob would love her if she gave him a son, but by the time she gets pregnant with the second one, she's still not loved. Verse 34, again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, and watch very carefully what she says. Now at last my husband will become attached to me. That's a different word. She's lowering her expectations. She thinks she's unlovable. Now what she's hoping for is just simply a partner to journey through life with. That hey, we've got all these kids together. That he and I will work together to be partners journeying through life. You can feel the sadness. I can. That doesn't work either, actually. Look over in chapter 30, verse 20. This is after Leah gives birth to a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor. She's lowering her expectations again. She doesn't think her husband will love her. She doesn't even think that he will view himself as her partner journeying through life. Now she's just hoping that he might respect her. 
that he would give her some honor that she has borne all of these children. It cuts you to the heart and you can feel the utter and total dysfunction. Second person is Rachel. She too is dysfunctional in a different way than her older sister, Leah. If we call Leah desperate for love, Rachel is probably best described as the prideful competitor. She is that younger sibling who is always fighting and struggling to get attention and to win the battle with her older sibling. Look in chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Can you hear the competitive fire in her belly? Now remember, the Bible describes her as, to Jacob, the more physically beautiful one. She's probably outshone her sister since a young age in this area. But Rachel's not satisfied with that. She's also the favorite wife. Jacob loves her more than he loves Leah. She's one in that category as well. But that's not enough for Rachel. She's losing when it comes to babies. And so she goes to Jacob and says, give me a child or I will die. Jacob's response, which we are gonna talk about when we get to Jacob, is not good. But notice what he says. Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Jacob's essentially saying, look, you wanna fight with people, you're always competing, go fight with God. He's not giving you any children. Wrestle with him, argue with him. He's like, I don't want anything to do with this. So Rachel decides to take matters into her own hands. I mean, hey, you gotta work hard if you're gonna win. And so she decides to make the same mistake that Jacob's grandmother did. And so she introduces the surrogate mother into the situation. Her servant ends up having a child that is reckoned to Rachel as her son. And so Rachel gets to name him. Watch carefully what she names in verse six of chapter 30. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Well, that sounds religious. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. What Dan essentially means is God's on my side. That's what she named this kid. God is for me. The servant has another child. Rachel gets to name this child too. Verse eight. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali, which essentially means I beat you. This is, this is a terrible way to name children. God's on my side and I beat you. Now finally at the end of the story, verse 24, God gives her her own child. Verse 24, she named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. What she essentially has named this child, give me more. 
These are the three names. God is for me. God is, God, God is on my side. I beat you and give me more. This woman should not be allowed to name children. <laughs> Do you hear the competitive fire? She's not naming her children after God in any real way. And she's not naming them what might be a blessing to them. It's about her and her fight to win. It's totally, completely dysfunctional. And then there's Jacob. If Leah is desperate for love and Rachel is the prideful competitor, I think I would call Jacob the weak spectator. It's like he's just watching his life happen. I have read this story countless times and I still, for the life of me, can't figure out how do you not know you're marrying the wrong sister? I get that it's dark. I get she's probably wearing a veil. But doesn't her voice sound different? If after seven years of being with Rachel, can you not notice differences in mannerisms or something? How does he end up marrying the wrong girl? And then the next morning, Laban comes and says, oh yeah, that's not the way we do it in this country. The older daughter has to get married first. You don't have to then turn around and marry the sister. Jacob is just totally, he doesn't have to buy Laban's explanation for it. In no culture do we have one guy marrying both sisters and everybody think that's a good idea. But Jacob, he feels weak and powerless. His life's just unfolding in front of him and other people are controlling it. Remember when Rachel said to him, give me children or I'll die? Look again at Jacob's response in verse two. Is he compassionate like Elkanah who said to Hannah when she was not able to have children that his heart hurt for her? No, Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Now that sounds religious. And it sounds spiritual, but it's not. Remember, this is Jacob, whose dad Isaac and whose mom Rebecca were not able to have children. And what did his dad do that ultimately caused them to be able to have children? He prayed for 20 years for Rebecca. Jacob has something he could be doing. That's no guarantee that Rachel would get pregnant. But we have no sense that Jacob is doing anything like what his dad did. He's just weak and passive. You can't have kids. Not my fault. It's just the way things roll. And then you get the really strange story where Leah hires Jacob as if he's like a prostitute to come and sleep with her, but Leah pays Rachel for the right to do this and Rachel orders him to go sleep with Leah. And you think, this guy's not even in control of who he sleeps with. And you get the sense 
that he's just a weak spectator on his own life. Complete and total dysfunction. Maybe you relate to one of these characters. Maybe you feel desperate for love. Maybe you feel those competitive fires burning in your soul that you have to beat your spouse, your siblings, your extended family. Maybe you feel totally and completely passive. Everybody else is acting and making things happen and you just simply respond to all the stuff that's happening around you. You might not identify with one of those guys. There's a lot more dysfunctions than just these three. But maybe you identify with the anger or the frustration or the rivalry or the lack of peace or the selfishness. Maybe you've experienced dysfunction in your family of origin, in your nuclear family, in your extended family. It just simply raises the question, where is God in all of this? Where is God in your family? Where is God in my family? Well, let's look. He's present. Chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. Her ability to give birth to children was a kindness from God in the midst of her being unloved. Chapter 30, verse 17. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant. Chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. Here is Leah who thinks she's unlovable, but God is loving her. God's not made all the problems go away, but he has been kind to her. He's been gracious to her. She doesn't deserve it, but he's giving her unconditional love and mercy. Even Rachel, the proud competitor who despite the surrogate mother and despite naming her child, I beat you, still feels deep in her soul the dishonor of not being able to bear children herself. And so God gives honor to this woman in his kindness and his grace, and his love, she too doesn't deserve it. Well, what about Jacob? We don't have a specific statement about God listened to Jacob, but by the end of the story, Jacob has 11 boys and one girl. He's got 12 kids. That, in that culture, was a sign of strength. So here is someone who is incredibly weak being given by God a sign of strength. He doesn't deserve it either. 
but God is kind, God is compassionate, God is gracious, God is loving, and God is present. He sees, he hears, he loves. So the question for you and I as we think about whatever dysfunction we may be experiencing, where is God? I know he's present. Take some time and think through how might he have been present, offering kindness that wasn't deserved, giving comfort, listening, seeing. His promise is he will never leave us or forsake us. In no way does God approve of what's going on in this story. In no way is God for what Leah is doing or what Rachel is doing or what Jacob is doing and in no way is God for whatever dysfunction you have experienced or you may be perpetrating. But he still is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. And the question for you and I, if we are experiencing dysfunction, is for us to stop and ask, but where is God? He's doing something. Maybe not everything that we want, Maybe not everything that will solve our problems, but he is somehow present. And if he's present, then you can cry out to him. If he's present, then he sees you. If he's present, you can ask him for guidance. Lord, should I stay connected in this situation? Lord, do I need some separation here? Lord, should I spend less time with the dysfunction that is causing me problems? Lord, how am I supposed to act? Lord, what am I supposed to do at this holiday season? Lord, how am I supposed to handle this comment? Lord, what do I do about this text chain? If he's present, he is present as your good shepherd who will lead you and guide you. Dysfunction is a reality. But a more powerful reality is God's love for you and his presence no matter what you're going through. Amen? There's actually more to the story than this. There's even better news than just the fact that God is present, as great as that is. The power of Encanto is not just that it shows us a dysfunctional family. It's hard to have a movie where all you've got is dysfunction. Mirabelle, who is the main character, brings rescue and salvation to the family. So too, it's not just that God is present with us in the midst of dysfunction. God in his love and mercy has provided for us a savior that obviously far outstrips Mirabelle or anything humans might be able to come up with. God seeing the dysfunction that is rife in this world sent his son, Jesus, to become one of us. A human, a baby, born into a family, growing up in a family, in a family that is relatively dysfunctional. Did you know that Jesus grew up in a relatively dysfunctional family? He knows how you feel. He knows the experiences we go through. At one point, his mom and his half-brothers, about Jesus we say half-brothers because they all have the same mom, Mary, 
Jesus has a different father, which is God. The others have a father who is Joseph. So we say Jesus and his half-brothers. At one point, his mom and his half-brothers try to forcibly take guardianship of the adult Jesus because they think he's lost his mind. That's not healthy. At another point, his half-brothers are the primary (coughs) instigators of persecution and suffering for Jesus. They're trying to hinder him from obeying what God the Father has asked him to do. That's dysfunctional. Even early in Jesus' life, he's trying to obey his father. And his mother and his earthly father don't understand the burden that he bears and they actually make it more difficult for him rather than easier. Jesus knows how family dynamics work. He's experienced unhealth and dysfunction. But I want you to notice something about the family that God placed his son Jesus in. We get a little insight into that family in Matthew 13, verse 55, where they're talking about Jesus. And they're saying amongst themselves, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't Jesus the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Now pay close attention to the names of his half-brothers. James is just the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Jacob. Jacob and James are the exact same name. If you say it in Hebrew, it's Jacob. If you say it in, in Greek or in English, it's James. Joseph, well, that's Rachel's firstborn son. He's the give me more kid. Simon, he's named after Simeon, which is Leah's second child, the one in which she realized that no matter how many children she had, her husband was never going to love her. And Judas is named after Judah, which is Leah's fourth boy, the one where she finally just simply says, I'm going to praise God regardless of what my husband does. Those four names, Jacob, Joseph, Simeon, and Judah, are names from our story. They're from the founding family in Israel's history. It's almost as if God has placed his son Jesus into the family from Genesis 29 and 30. That he's placed him into a family that reminds us of his great ancestor Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, Israel and his 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel to make this point. In the midst of that dysfunctional family, Jesus himself experienced the pain of dysfunction. Until the people in his family came to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And once they did, the dysfunction became health. James wrote the book of the Bible called James that we have. Judas wrote the book of the Bible that we call Jude in our New Testament. We don't know exactly what happened to Simon and Joseph except that the book of Acts tells us that they were part of the leadership in the early church in promoting Jesus as Lord. 
that when they thought Jesus was just one of their siblings, when they were acting selfishly in their own interest, their family, Jesus' family, was full of dysfunction. And when they came to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, and when they submitted their decisions to his lordship, their dysfunction became health. And God did it this way so that we might see this is our salvation. That God gives to us Jesus and that if any family, no matter what the harm, no matter what the difficulty, will turn to Jesus and acknowledge Jesus as Lord, not just in word, but also in deed, dysfunction will become health. And destructive relationships will become life-giving. Now you say... Great, but what if I can't get my siblings or my aunts and uncles or my parents or my kids or my grandkids to acknowledge Jesus as Lord? Maybe they think they're Christians, but they're not acting with Jesus as Lord. Jacob knows that Yahweh is God, but he is not behaving in a way that's full of the Spirit. What if you or I are in the same situation where you're like, but they won't acknowledge Jesus as Lord? Well, now that's a tough one, but not too tough for Jesus. Now, one of the times that Jesus' family was most dysfunctional, his mom and his siblings showed up. And someone went to Jesus and said, your mom and your siblings are here. And Jesus uttered a super important statement. He said, who's my mom and who are my siblings? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that's my mom, and those are my siblings. And by doing that, Jesus took the family, the biological family, the adoptive family, the nuclear family, the extended family, and he moved it down a slot. And what he inserted above it is the family of God, the church. We say blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than blood. And Jesus said, I am creating a new community, a community in which I will reign as Lord, and he is inviting all of us out of our dysfunctional families to come be part of his family. That does not mean there is no dysfunction in the church. All you have to do is come to church to realize there is dysfunction at church but something is different something is different because God has promised by his spirit that wherever Jesus is Lord especially in the church there is a greater degree of health and so if you are in a biological nuclear family, adoptive family extended family, if in your family relationships you are experiencing dysfunction I invite you to come be part of God's family I invite you to come and be a place where we are trying to let Jesus be Lord. And if you find a church, hopefully it's here. If it has to be somewhere else, better to find a real church. If you find a church where Jesus is making decisions, where Jesus is running the show, where people are confessing their sins to Jesus, where people are wanting to listen to Jesus, where we are trying to obey Jesus, you will experience more health than you do dysfunction. 
There may not be anything you can do about your biological family. But God in his mercy and grace is creating a new family. And he invites you out of whatever dysfunction you may be experiencing to come and experience a place and a people where Jesus is Lord. And you get to see all the difference that that makes. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.